Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can flip, turn, tap your way to Philippians 3, where we're going to be looking again at what God has spoken to uh, His people in the Word. We want to give you a copy of the scriptures if you don't have one, because, listen, you want to know about Hope Church? Read the Bible. We are trying as hard as we can to conform Hope Church to Scripture. And the, the Scripture is real clear about people, that we're messed up, and Hope Church fits into that category. And the Bible is very clear about what God has done to deal with that situation. We hope to show that story, to talk that story, to preach, to sing that story, both with when things are going well in our lives and through the storm. And through the storm is a big deal. It's a big piece of all this. I, uh, I know that, that church has kind of gotten wider in some ways over the last couple of years. I mean, the whole online experience has been something everybody tried for a minute when you couldn't really gather. But coming together is a big deal. And part of the reason it's a big deal is that song we just sang. When you just sang, Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. I need to hear you sing that. I, I, I know that to be true. I believe that to be true. But to hear that echoed across the heartbeats of all the people in this room. Now, again, we want to actually hear these people sing. That's why we keep their volume high. I don't actually need to hear your like voices, you know, <laughs> lovely. You make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's just noise though. It's not like song uh, in the beautiful way that some of these people are able to harmonize and, you know, warble and everything. But I do need to know that you are singing. And there are times when they'll pull back from the mic a little bit and you can kind of hear the hubbub behind you and you know, hey, these are all people singing together. These are people who know or at least are investigating the possibility that Jesus is the answer to these questions. And what I want to do today as we continue to look at what Paul had taught through Philippians is to again, maybe again for the first time, say what he said about how Jesus does get inside you and change everything radically. The way I was thinking about it is when you, when you think about uh, the season we're stepping into. So this week we're going to have Thanksgiving, which is, you know, reportedly would be when we would give thanks or talk about giving thanks, whether or not we actually do. Uh, that, that would be a time we focus more on gratitude, praise God. And then very quickly into Christmas and supply chain stuff. I mean, Black Friday is like Black, I don't know, six Tuesdays ago because everybody's kind of getting after it already. Christmas is already upon us, Right. And as you get close to Christmas, you think about the, the experience of Christmas. Now, I hope as you're looking forward to Christmas, there's something that you're really happy about, really excited about. Uh, but as a parent, you watch kids get really excited about whatever they're going to open, right? And then, you know, if you're somebody who's been a parent for very long, you realize that what they got excited about doesn't stay that exciting. Uh, it's, it's awesome at Christmas and for like two or three weeks even, <laughs> you know, if they're good. Or it may be less than that. And then very quickly, yeah, you know, it's just furniture. It's just stuff. It's just clutter around your house. 
And you kind of go through that experience. You get really excited and then, meh, you know, it wasn't what you thought it was. And then here's the next thing that you can get really excited about until, meh, you know, maybe not so exciting anymore. Until, you know, the next distraction, the next event, the next possibility. What I think Paul wants to encourage us with today from Philippians is a, a different option to that. Christianity is supposed to turn that on its head, that there is supposed to be something that is so beautiful in the message that we believe, the Christ that we're proclaiming, that if you see him really, then all the world gets turned upside down. You don't go, you you don't stay as somebody who needs greater and greater stimulus in order to feel something and yet become more and more jaded. You instead become somebody who is amazed with something that is so enlivening that everything else around it just glows with the joy and the beauty of that one. And a guy named uh, Chesterton, I talk about him a lot, big surprise. You can tell, here's just a window into my world, you can tell how much time I had to prepare uh, a sermon in a given week based on who I quote. Uh, if it's a lot of like C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, yeah, I didn't have a lot of time. Because that, those are the ones that are ready to go, you know, I've had those, I think about those, that's what's bouncing around in my own head. Uh, if I can get like more interesting, you know, maybe it was, seemed like very well-read people, then you know, okay, Ben had a little more time. Okay, but this week, no. Chesterton, though, he said this, and I think it's helpful. He's talking about religious art the way in which groups of people have chosen to represent the thing that they believe. And he's contrasting Buddhism with Christianity. And he says, The Buddhist saint has a sleek and harmonious body, but his eyes are, heavily, uh, are heavy and sealed with sleep. Now, again, this isn't a Buddhist. He's talking about the Buddha, you know, the thing that you see as religious iconography within that uh, worldview. He contrasts it and says... The medieval saint's body is wasted to its crazy bones, but in his eyes, uh, his eyes are frightfully alive. The Buddhist is looking with a peculiar intentness inwards. The Christian is staring with a frantic intentness outwards. And I want you to gather that today. I want you to see that today, and I want to apply it to you today. So let's do it. It says in Philippians chapter 3, he's talking about this salvation that we're been, we've been given, this resurrection that's promised through Christ. And he says, not that I've already obtained this resurrection. I'm supplying that word because that's from the verses above. Or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, that's a very unique way of thinking about how people relate to God. And yet, it's very specific to Christianity. It's what separates Christianity from everything else. Because he's saying that I'm being changed. I'm pressing on toward this change. But I'm not accepted on the basis of that change. I've already been accepted by Christ. I'm learning about him. I'm studying him. I'm having him change me radically. But he's not going to grade how much I change and then decide if it's enough for him to accept me. There's no scale system. There's no ledger sheet where you're having your change or not change recorded, added up, taught it up against one another, and then seeing if God will then choose to accept you. No. He's saying the exact opposite. Christ has made me his own, and now I'm becoming more like he wants me to be, brothers. I don't consider that I've made it my own. 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold to what we have attained. Now, reading this, there's a little bit of me that got real excited when he talked about forgetting what lies behind. I've been working on some stuff with biblical counseling. Hopefully we're going to see more and more of that at Hope Church. And when he's talking about your past, okay, that's kind of the whole thing with counseling, right? You're looking at stuff that's happened in people's past and helping them to kind of deal with it a little bit. But he said here, forgetting, forgetting what lies behind. And so I want to take a second. Is he talking about that we just take our past and we don't We don't reckon with it. We don't think about it. We just throw it away and keep focused on what's ahead of us. Well, no, because he is talking very specifically about what he had been talking about to this point, this this sort of either or of his life where he was this incredibly impressive Pharisee and Jewish member of their kind of, I don't know, law and, and group, you don't want to say cult, but they're, 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 their religious sort of affiliation, they're in and around Jerusalem. And he was impressive, but he counts all that as loss. He counts all that as rubbish because instead he wants Christ. And he sets up this either or, and he says, I'm going to forget all that. I'm not going to keep living that way. I'm going to instead choose Christ. So he's not saying is just forget about your past. And I'm just going to give you a little plug here for biblical counseling type stuff. There's a great, great book by a guy named Steve Viers, V-I-A-R-S, called Putting Your Past in Its Place, where he just talks about looking back on the major events of your life that are either very painful, something happened to you, or painful because of something you did, and working through dealing with them through the lens of the gospel. It's incredibly helpful, but it's not what's being talked about here. So plug over. He is talking about something else instead. He's saying that he's going to make a purposeful choice to not build his identity on what he's done, but instead press on in the gospel that he has received through Christ. If you've heard there's a definition out there for insanity. Have you heard that definition? You may be able to just say it. I don't want you to try to. But, but you may, where you just say the definition of insanity is attempting the same thing over again and expecting a different result. Has anybody heard that before? Yeah, it's kind of out there. That is not the definition of insanity. Look up insanity. It's a totally different definition. The definition of insanity really is the state of being seriously mentally ill, madness, or extreme foolishness or irrationality. An example of insanity is trying the same thing and expecting a different result. But we get that kind of concept that it's the definition from the sort of uh, AAs of the world. And it's not exactly Alcoholics Anonymous where it started. It was kind of like a sister organization or a similar organization, but they just started using that language to try and to, to encapsulate that wisdom. And it's super helpful. It's part of why all of us have heard that before. But you can imagine that, that a, a recovery group for people with addictions would resonate with that sentence, right? Why are you trying the same thing when the last time and every time before that, it was so bad? 
And, you know, addiction, we can talk a million things about it, but, but you get why they would say that. But Paul here, he, he's saying that the same thing was true in his life, but it wasn't about uh, an addiction to some destructive substance. He was addicted to something that we would all celebrate, be impressed by. When he's talking about these things that he's forgetting, he's talking about his own life as an impressive Jewish guy. And he goes through, he sets up different categories, and it's kind of like this chest-thumping, like impressive thing that he does where he says, Jew? Oh, bud, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Benjamite. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Don't ask me about Jew. Okay, well, were you a follower of the law? As to being a follower of the law, I was a Pharisee, bro. Like, you want to talk about follower of the law? I was the law. I followed the law. Okay, but were you zealous? Zealous? I persecuted Christians, this new little thing that was coming up and trying to break apart the Judaism I grew up with. I killed those people. Don't talk to me about zealous. He was saying that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was addicted in some ways to stuff that's impressive, achievement, approval. So I just want to ask you, what, what's in your life? You may be here today and you've got a lot of stuff you're not impressed with from your past. And the scripture talks about us in that way. Paul, in another point, again, he's not talking about forgetting your past. We have to understand our past. He talks about in another point in the Corinthian letters. He says this, this list of people that aren't going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. He talks about the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers. That These will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you have a little bit of understanding of what the Bible says about those categories, you should start getting real nervous. Because when he says that, you don't go, yeah, they shouldn't. You should understand that when he's talking about those categories, he's now talking about us. To whatever degree you put your toe into that cesspool of sin, we've all done it. And so he continues and he says, and such were some of you. The Christian community is a community that understands people who do those things because we were people who do those things. And yet... We were washed. We were cleansed by what Christ has done for us. So we get that. But we also, and I think a lot of us are in this category too, we understand what it is to be one of these achievement addicts, one of these people who is passionate about proving how much better they are than everybody else. And usually you pick your thing and you do that thing. It could be bodybuilding. It could be your job. It could be your hobby. It could be fill in the blank. But you're going to decide, here's my arena, and I'm going to be the best in this arena. I'm going to accumulate the pride that goes with it. And here's what happens. Maybe you've felt this kind of pride before, but you stand on the top of your own little mountain, impressed with yourself, and then you're able to look down on everybody else. So what happens when you become proud is you also become lonely. Everybody in your world is somebody you're looking down at or looking up to. There's somebody you've beaten or somebody you have yet to beat. It's anathema to love. It's the opposite. So we don't want to be proud. We don't want to be that kind of judgmental. We have these categories for what sin is. We don't pretend that everything's okay. 
but neither do we say that we're better than other people. Pride creates that otherness, that judgmentalism, but it also creates an incredible amount of anxiety. You have to build this picture of yourself that you present to the world, and then you find that you have to maintain that picture. You have to maintain that outward appearance of beauty, perfection, strength, competence. And every day, a thousand things are going to challenge that picture. And you, through the strength of will and grit that's in you, have to try and continue to maintain that picture. Can you? Will you? Fear. Anxiety. No, there, no there's, there's something better. And that was what God, Paul's presenting to us. There's something so much more beautiful than you for you to love. And nature abhors a vacuum. You can't just not be proud. You have to choose something else. And here's what Paul puts in that place. Again, 14 to 16, he says, I press on to make the, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, Jesus. Everybody that's mature needs to think this way. And if anything, you're not thinking that way, God will reveal that. He'll help you. But we have to be true. We have to hold true to what we have attained. And what have we attained? Not a standard. We've attained a person. Not a principle, not a law, not a perfection. A person. Jesus. He, he's given us one to love. He's given us a thing with arms that can grip us and hold us and, and be for us joy. But you have to choose. It's one or the other. That's why he's talking about forgetting what lies behind. It doesn't mean forgetting your past. It means looking away from this other joy, this other contentment, and instead choosing what will actually give you joy, not fear and anxiety and judgmentalism and loneliness, but the world. Jesus. That Jesus will give you peace. That Jesus will give you purpose. That He will give your life structure, but it's structure with joy. He continues in verse 17. He's going to compare us and contrast us having Christ with those that don't. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Now, if we just made this big thing about pride, why would Paul say, you know what? You want to do well at this? be like me. That's proud, right? To assume that you could be the standard for others to look to, to work towards, but he's not doing that. When he says, join in imitating me, he says, joining imitating me in pursuing Christ, in having a whole lot of junk, but junk that you're looking away from and looking toward Jesus as all those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He's saying walk away from all this because there is another choice. You could choose to try and be satisfied 
with all these desires you go after. When I, talk, when I read this passage, I, there's all kinds of stuff in my life, and I don't want to make this about me. But one of the places that I think maybe illustrates this a little bit, uh, I went to college. When I went to undergrad, my parents were kind enough to help me move into my dorm. So they drove with me. They helped me get everything kind of in and set up. And, you know, Mom, I'm the oldest of my uh, brothers, so, you know, I'm the first kid out of the nest. She wants to make sure I'm okay. Her baby, a uh, six foot six, 200-pound baby that's going to be safe in this, you know, new environment. Uh, I was fine. But she wanted to kind of, you know, check it. And so they're helping me. They help me move in. We go out to dinner, and they're going to drive back hours away back to the home, you know, and they're going to leave me. And so we say our goodbyes, and we got to kind of say them quick because, you know, mom's not going to cry. Not going to, good to see you, thank you, bye, love you. You know, she's, we got to make it quick so that she can cry on the drive back and not in the moment. So, bye, love you, well, yep, thanks, bye. And they drive away, and I turn from the car to start walking back to the campus, and I just had this thought. So what do I do now? And then, like, from the blackness comes back this answer of whatever I want. <laughs> and it was just like that moment in Home Alone where the parents are gone. And he's like, I made my parents disappear. I made my parents disappear, you know? And then he just goes nuts. And that's what I did too. And it was honestly, it was kind of similar because he's like, you know, ice cream and cop movies. That was me. It was just a bunch of like empty calories and movies and stuff. It was a lot of video games and playing um, Mario Kart or whatever, as long as I want, you know, like it, it wasn't as drastic as maybe some people's stories, but it was, it was an indulging in pleasure. It showed that once you pulled away a restraint, now it's a restraint I've had my whole life to that point, I'm 18 or whatever, but once you pull away restraint, what is my desire? Not somebody else's desire. What is my desire? What am I after? In that moment, do I have a relaxing evening, but know that my purpose is to bring the joy of the Lord to this this new group of thousands of people I'm around? Or take away the reins is what's in me, just my own belly. Now tell me if you can relate to that to some degree, even now. Is it possible that when you look at your life, you are trying to assemble a group of things that will give you the most pleasure that you can get at your status right now. If so, look at what Paul's telling, man. He's saying, listen, you are looking to things that can't satisfy. And if you look to them as the the full end of your satisfaction, the thing that's really going to make you, you, and you happy, they become your God or your belly, your center of desires becomes your God, and your end is destruction. The scripture is so helpful here, too, because there's a part of you that's just enjoying pleasure, but you can't go as far as you want to go. And so you've always got that question in your head of, okay, but if I had gone a little bit further, would it have worked? God in history actually allowed a guy to go further. He gave a guy the resources. He gave a guy the ability to go as far as he could in all of these different directions. He shouldn't have, not God, this guy should not have done that. 
But having the power that he had, having the wisdom and the money that he had, he chose instead to see, to test himself. His name was Solomon. He wrote a book about it called Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament. And in it, he goes after laughter. And he finds that at the end of laughter is just madness. He goes after pleasure. And at the end of pleasure, he finds that it's all useless. He goes after wine. He goes after folly. He goes after work. He goes after natural beauty. He goes after possessions. He goes after money. He goes after singers. I don't know. It's just in there. And then he goes after concubines. Now we understand that one, sexual morality, we we understand that that has a lure to it. And he says, looking at all this, Ecclesiastes 2, 9 through 11, he says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's saying under the sun on purpose, because he's saying if these things are your God instead of Yahweh, the God over the sky... If he's not your God and all these things become your purpose, it's vanity. It's chasing after wind. It's useless, but more than useless, as Paul helps us understand, it will destroy you. So, is that you? Maybe it is the other side. Maybe it's not the accomplishment piece, even though he, he embodies that too with his toil and work. Maybe it's just raw pleasure. Maybe it is more hedonistic. Can I tell you, though, it's not going to work. You need him instead. You need Christ instead. And Paul's looking around and he's seeing these people and he's not saying, tut, tut, tisk tisk, wag of the finger. Squint to the eye at these sinful people. That's what everybody expects religious people to do towards people who are outside of their law or their standard of practice. That we would just look out into the world and say, the rest of everybody is so screwed up, aren't we glad we're not? But not Paul, and not Jesus, and not God, not Christianity. Because Paul is, is looking on these people with tears. He sees them and he's crying for them because they are walking around as enemies of the cross. And Jesus talks about enemies in Matthew 5, and he's talking to the Lord of the Mount, he's talking, or the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about how we are to love our enemies. And when he does that, he's not just flipping the world upside down, he's showing us what the heart of God is like. In 2 Peter 3 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. One of the songs we sang was based on John 3, 16. For God so loved the world he created, he sent his only son. He loved the enemies that he sent his only son. So, how do we find the deep pleasure that he's promising? How do we walk away from this worship of our own desires, our own bellies to our own destruction? Well, look again at Philippians. It continues in verse 20. 
but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. They're referencing back to chapter 2. Jesus, we're not with Him yet, but we will be. And one of the other things is when the trumpet sounds, when all things are made right again, when God reasserts His presence, judgment will be with Him again. We'll have Him again. But now we're looking to Him. We're awaiting our Savior, this Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is there with Him. And we're, we're hoping, we're looking forward to, we're seeing in all things the fingerprint, the touch of the divine. There is this tinge of heaven all around us where we see maybe even in the broken, horrible things of the world, what should be, what will be. And we worship the one who will make all these things right. We're looking to him. We're seeing him. We're replacing constantly these gods of our belly with some level of self-control as we pursue Christ. That mechanism, I hope you're seeing it. We're saying it over and over and over again where you're going to trade pride for love. Seeking pleasure, seeking achievement for yourself versus, we're going to trade it for, love of Him. So, know yourself. What's the application? What are you supposed to do with this information? Just start looking at yourself a little bit. Where are you pursuing joy? Is it in you? Are most of your thoughts, are most of your wants based around your pursuit of money? Enough money to redo the bathroom, then you'll be happy. Enough money to upgrade the cars, then, oh wow, then we'll be happy. Enough money for the nicer vacation? No. To exchange. I want you to see. I want you to find. And then I also want you to spend time with Jesus. The only way in which you're going to actually connect to this one, the only way that you're going to love him more than you love all this other stuff is to actually see him. And how do you see him? Well, you show up here and you hear other people sing the same stuff with you. You open up your Bible and you just look. John says that he is the word and he means so many things, but he doesn't mean less than when you read his word, you're going to see his face. You pray to him, you talk to him, you pursue him. And as you do, when you see this conflict in your life, the difficulty, the strain that comes from from walking away from one, from forgetting what lays behind and straining on toward what's there for you in Christ, you talk to somebody about it. Community groups are great places for this. Sunday morning is a great place for this. To just say to somebody, hey, I'm struggling, and here's why. Here's where. And watch as they say to you, and such were some of us. Yeah, that's me. I, I got you, bro, because I'm right there with you. Here's what we do. As you walk together away from pride, away from fear and anxiety, away from that loneliness towards this one who died, 
Therefore, Paul's able to put it all together in 4.1 where he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray that over you. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask this morning for this group, these people who have become brothers and sisters, if they've come to know you, or these people that are kind of looking, they're watching and trying to see Father, these ones whom you love, the ones who we love and long for, we pray, Lord, that they would stand firm in you, walking away from these things that will destroy them, Lord. Don't let our God be our belly. Don't let our God be our accomplishments. But Father, teach us to turn away from what can never satisfy to you who will always satisfy. Lord, for your glory and our good. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.